take a look at another reformer. This is John Huss, who was influenced by Wycliffe. There's just this long line of godly men and women who uh, gave their lives for the Bible that you have right there in your hands. The song says it only takes a spark to set a whole fire going. And once the fire was lit in one part of Europe, it spread quickly to other areas. John Wycliffe had made a massive impact, not just in England, but further afield in Europe, in particular here in Prague, and the region that was known then as Bohemia. John Huss was of humble birth, and his father died soon after he was born. His mother sought an education for him, and he was able to get admission to the University of Prague as a charity scholar. As she reached Prague with her son, she knelt down and prayed that God would bless his life, a prayer that was answered again and again. He soon distinguished himself by his tireless application to study and by his blameless life. Upon completing his studies, he entered the priesthood and rapidly rose to prominence, soon becoming attached to the court of the king. In a few short years, he was the pride of his country, and his name was known all over Europe. Today, they built a statue to commemorate him here in the Old Town Square. Several years after becoming a priest, Huss was appointed preacher of the Bethlehem Chapel here in Prague. The founder of this particular chapel had advocated as a matter of importance the preaching of the scriptures in the language of the people. At that time, there was a large degree of ignorance concerning the Bible, and Huss also believed that it was vitally important to preach the scriptures in the language of the people. At this point in his life, Huss came in contact with Jerome, who had proved to be his right-hand man until his death. Jerome was a citizen of Prague, and he had brought back with him from a recent trip to England the writings of John Wycliffe. The Queen of England at that time was also a convert of John Wycliffe, and she was a Bohemian princess, and through her influence, his writings were circulated at length in Bohemia. Huss read them believed their author to be a sincere Christian and believed the writings to be true. Huss's impact was growing, not just here in his homeland, but also in neighboring Germany. And soon news of the work here in Prague reached Rome and he was summoned to appear before the Pope. To go would be fatal. The king and queen of Bohemia the nobility and the government all asked for a local trial, but this was not granted. The trial of Huss went ahead in his absence, during which the city of Prague was put under interdict. This struck terror into the hearts of everyone. No church services could take place 
baptisms, funerals, weddings, those ceremonies that were so key to life in general were not allowed to take place. And through this means, Rome was able to hold sway over the people. The city was in turmoil, and Sahas withdrew to his native village. But he continued to travel to the surrounding countryside where he was able to preach to eager crowds. When the danger and excitement had subsided, he was able to return to Prague, where alongside with Jerome, he was able to continue his work. During this time in Europe, there was not one or two but three rival popes, all claiming to be the vicar of Christ. This abuse of power in the church was something that many men strongly condemned, Huss being one of the loudest voices. The emperor at that time, Emperor Sigismund, called for a council in Constance, Germany, to settle this dispute once and for all, and also to deal with some of the new heresies arising from men such as John Huss that they didn't agree with. Huss was summoned to appear before the council and was given assurance of a safe passage by the emperor. One thing that stands out from this story is the prayer that John Huss's mum made with him as he was on his way to university. I want to encourage you, if you're praying for a child, if you're praying for a parent, to never give up in your prayers. The prayer of John Huss's mother was answered many, many times over in ways that she couldn't have even imagined. Maybe you're praying for your children, maybe they're on their way to school, maybe you're praying for a loved one. Keep them in prayer and never think that our prayers will go unanswered. God does hear and God does answer our prayers. All right, we will find out more of what happens uh, at that uh, conference and what happens to John Huss next week. But uh, for now, I want you to... Uh, Turn in your Bibles, if you have them, and I hope you do, to uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 through 17, which is kind of our base passage that we're drawing, that we're drawing all that we have studied thus far from regarding Scripture alone. Scripture alone. Why? Here's the question we've been answering for the last two weeks and this week and next. Why is Scripture alone? uniquely necessary. And as we saw with Wycliffe, as we'll see with Huss, it's even worth dying for. Why is that Bible in your hands worth dying for? And we've summed this up, the answer to this question of why it's uniquely necessary in four words. And we saw so far, the first word is authority. The Bible is God speaking to us uniquely and absolutely with divine authority. The second word, inerrancy. The Bible is God speaking to us uniquely and truthfully without error. Those two questions alone are worthy of us realizing that this book is like no other book and that we should be in it and we should be praying over it, weeping over it, learning it and studying it. But today, we want to look at the third characteristic of the Bible that makes it absolutely necessary for knowing and enjoying God, and it's the word clarity. Now, before studying this lesson, I had never even heard a single sermon on the clarity of Scripture. And before today, I had never taught one. 
And I am convinced that this is one of the most important doctrines. And this was important to the Reformers. They constantly taught on the clarity of Scripture regarding sola scriptura, which is what we're studying. And why is that? Because each of these men had a passion. They wanted God's Word to be in the hands of the common people. But that raises a question. If I'm a common person, simple, uneducated, not some scholar, not some learned person, and I have the Bible in my hands, can I understand it? Can I understand it? The clarity of Scriptures is still important today. And by the way, the reason the Reformers really hammered on that was because the Roman Catholic Church answered that question by saying, No, you cannot, you lowly commoners, cannot understand the Bible. In fact, it got to the point where they prohibited. It wasn't until the Second Vatican in the 19, uh, 1900s, late 1900s, that officially the Pope allowed Roman Catholics to read their Bible. And of course, in the Reformation, it was in Latin, and the people didn't know Latin. And so the clarity of Scripture was very important, but it's still important today. Because I'm telling you, the, one of the most common objections, I hope, I hope, listen, you have encountered these objections if you're talking to people and witnessing to people. Now, if you're not witnessing and you're not sharing Jesus and you're not pointing people to the Bible, you'll never hear these objections because there's nothing to object to. You're not sharing Christ. But if you point people to Christ and to the Bible, you will hear objections like these. Yeah, but the Bible's so hard to understand. No one can really know what it's talking about, right? Who can say what the Bible really teaches? There's so many denominations, and they'll throw at you the number of 30,000, 40,000. So many denominations that disagree over what the Bible says. Who can say who is right and who is wrong? Don't they all claim to base their beliefs on the same Bible? Are you hearing this? This is what they say. And, and, and in fact, after you say that, they kind of look at you and say, are you so arrogant as to think you know the Scriptures when nobody can understand? Besides, in this day and age, everyone is entitled to their own opinion about what the Bible means by what it says. What makes your interpretation any better than mine? Here's another one, and, and this is even within Christianity, because increasingly this spirit of doubt about the clarity of Scripture is creeping into our churches. And sometimes the books we publish as Christians doesn't help. There's a whole series of books about five views on baptism, four views on sanctification. And pretty soon you're like, hey, if these scholarly guys that write books, and they, you know, they can't, you know, there's four views of everything, then it doesn't really matter. Why worry about this? Why argue about this? Let's just give up and pick the one we like. Anyways, what does it matter if I think the Bible says one thing and you think another thing as long as we all just get along and love one another? Doesn't these knowing for sure what the Bible says, isn't it simply divisive? Why can't we just focus on really what all religions come down to and let's just obey the golden rule? I am telling you, these are the objections you will encounter. And every one of them are an attack 
or a questioning of the clarity of Scripture. So here's what we're going to look at today. Clarity. The Bible is God speaking clearly to be understood and obeyed. Okay, that's if you don't if 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 we get lost along the way, don't forget that. The Bible is God speaking clearly to be understood and obeyed. Now, theologians, Bible scholars sometimes refer to this doctrine as pers- perspicuity, which is not only hard to understand, but no one knows what it means, and it's kind of funny because it talks about the clarity of scripture and yet the word's not clear. So we won't use that word. We're just going to use the word clarity because that's clear i give you some definitions these are just the definition is simple uh, you know it's nice you know the simple the definitions are clear about clarity so here they are the bible can be comprehended and understood by all who are aided by the holy spirit and by ordinary means which means in other words the bible is not so clear that you don't have to read it It's not so clear that you don't have to study it. It's not so clear that you don't need to come to Discovery Hour and have your pastors and teachers and and lay leaders teaching you the Word of God. Those are the ordinary means. But the point is, with the help of the Holy Spirit and doing due diligence and studying to show yourself approved, you can understand the Scriptures. Here's another definition. The Bible is written in such a way that its teachings are able to be understood by all who will read it, seeking God's help, and being willing to follow it. I like that last part. So, in other words, it's what we bring to it that, that, that helps us understand it. You need to come with a surrendered heart. I did a whole series down here on hupakuo. That is, submit yourself to the Word before you read it and say, God, whatever you say, I will do. And that's the key to understanding the Word. And then this last definition by David Platt. The Bible is a unified story that's clearly understandable to all who devote themselves to study it in dependence on the Holy Spirit. All great definitions. All are very clear. The Confessions, the London Baptist Confession, Articles 6 through 9, all deal with issues related to the clarity of Scriptures. You see how important that is. But look at Article 7. Some things in Scripture are clearer than others. Yeah, we agree. And some people understand the teachings more clearly than others. That's true, too. However, the things that must be known, believed, and obeyed for salvation are so clearly set forth and explained in one part of Scripture or another that both the educated and uneducated may achieve a sufficient understanding of them by properly using ordinary measures. That's the value of a confession. It just it says it clearly, simply, and really, really grabs it and puts it all there. Now, the definitions are clear. And they say simply this, the Bible's clear and you can understand it by ordinary means with the help of the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's clarity. But why all the objections? Why is this the area where people will constantly object? Not only unsaved people you're witnessing to, but professing Christians who you're trying to disciple. Maybe you in this room have had these same objections, and that's okay. We're not here to condemn or shame you for having those. I want, by the clarity of Scripture, to show you 
how you can set those aside, that, there, that there's answers to those questions, right? And there's ways to overcome those objections through the Word of God. So I want to give you five challenges, five challenges. And I had to cut and eliminate tons of good stuff because here's what I decided. If we don't understand the challenges that are saturating our society, that are saturating churches, that are good Bible-believing churches, that are in our universities, our Christian universities, if we don't see the challenges that are floating around, even right here in this room, then we're going to miss out. We have this beautiful word that men and women died for, and we're going to say, well, I can't understand that. Or it doesn't really matter what I believe about it as long as we're around good Christian people. So let me give you the challenges. Here they are, and I'm, I'm going to make them as practical and relate them to where you are. This is, you know, this is relatable to the school, to the work, to your own family. Number one, challenge number one is the challenge of mystical spiritism. Mystical spiritism. And uh, and this is very prevalent, mystical spiritism. And here's basically what it says. Because God's word is not clear enough, we need to resort to some form of subjective mysticism. Hum, hum. And I'm going to be biblical about it because it's going to be the Holy Spirit. Okay? So if it's the Holy Spirit, then it's okay. All right. And so as you see in your notes, this basic this challenge basically says this. The spirit is better than the clarity of scriptures. Mystical spiritism comes in many forms and it comes down to this. Here's how here's you know this is mystical spiritism when someone stands in front of you and says, "Don't get bogged down with reading an old book to hear from God. Instead, get a fresh word of God through the Holy Spirit." Speaking directly to you. Now, that's just, you know, in a society that's increasingly illiterate and in a society where adults, once they leave college, barely read a complete book, stats prove that, you got two options here. You got a guy like me saying, get in there, read this book, read through it, study it, and then you got to say, you don't need to do that. You just get a fresh word from the Spirit. Now, which are you going to be tempted to choose? Yeah, come on. Let's be honest. That's that's what we're going to be tempted to do. Now, during the Reformation, there were some Anabaptists who went off the deep end and they overreacted to the the study of the Word of God. And they said, listen to the inner word of the Spirit. Get a dream. Get a vision. And so a lot of the Reformers talked about the clarity of Scripture to counteract this extreme of Anabaptists. But... That's, 50, that's 500 years ago. But that hasn't gone away. We live in a day when some charismatics take this same approach. A fresh word of prophecy. Speaking in tongues. Get the Spirit to tell you. The word's good, but the Spirit is better. Okay? And it's not just Anabaptists 500 years ago, charismatics. What about some Protestants and Baptists who like to say, God told me to do so and so. Or, I prayed about it and I'm doing this without ever consulting what the Scriptures clearly say about what they prayed about and God told them. 
Well, God didn't tell you to do something that he has already, you know, that he didn't, uh, he's, he didn't tell you to do something that goes against what he's clearly said. And if you prayed about it and he told you to do something that's already clearly in there, wonderful. That, may, that means the Spirit simply told you something that you should have already read in the Bible, right? That's the first challenge. I think we can all be tempted by that. Second challenge, the challenge of mysterious agnosticism. Mysterious as agnosticism. Okay? The mystery of agnosticism. Agnosticism simply means the mystery of not knowing. The mystery. Who wants a clear word of God when you can enjoy the mystery of not knowing? Now, you're like, that sounds like, like craziness. It is craziness. But it's a craziness that's very appealing, especially to the younger generation, especially in this postmodern age. Let me talk about this a little bit. Mysteri- and, and I'm coining this word, so you, know, you can quote me on this. This famous person said this, me. Mysterious agnosticism is the idea that God is so mysterious that the Bible cannot clearly reveal Him and even hinders us from knowing Him. In fact, no one can really know anything about Him, for sure. And that's what agnosticism means. It means not knowing, unable to know. And here's... So each one of these words, I don't care for you. You don't have to remember all the isms. Underneath them, I have a simple explanation. And here's what it says. Mystery is less clear, but actually better than the clarity of Scripture. Mystery is less clear. That's why it's mystery. But it's better than the clarity of Scripture. And any, if you have any wisdom from the Lord, you know why they would say that. Because when it's clear, what am I accountable to do? I'm accountable to obey it. When it's not clear, you can't tell me I'm wrong. You, you know, we can all get along and we can all be united. The mystery of not knowing God is better than knowing the clear teaching of His Word. This kind of attack on the clarity of the Bible, it plays into a false humility. It's the idea of, I just humble myself before the mighty and mysterious God in heaven. And I don't presume that little me could know what he's really saying in the Bible or really know what he's doing in the world. For example, one man who used to be an evangelical pastor said this, The moment God is figured out with nice, neat lines and definitions, we are no longer dealing with God. We are dealing with somebody we'd made up. Now, why would Rob Bell say that? Why would he say that? Well, here's why. And here's what he says. In an interview with Christianity Today on the topic of emergent mystique. There you go. Mysterious. Mystique. Here's what Rob Bell said, him and his wife. We found ourselves increasingly uncomfortable with the church. A church that they had just planted. Okay, that's kind of scary. Life in the church had become so small. Kristen says, his wife. It had worked for me for a long time, and then it stopped working. The bell started questioning their assumptions about the Bible itself. Discovering the Bible as a human product, as Rob puts it, rather than the product of divine fiat, God speaking, the very thing. He shifted from the very thing we've been teaching for the last two weeks to merely seeing, instead of dual authorship, 
It's just human authorship. And here's what happened. The Bible is still in the center for us. Notice, in the center, not the center. But it's a different kind of center. Yes, Rob, it's a different kind of center. It's a center that's not center. It's a, it's, I, but see, to be an evangelical, you've got to keep saying, if you want the book, you want to sell your books, if you want to keep butts in the pew, then you've got to keep saying you're a Bible believer all the time that you're deceiving and, and you're not. And so here's what he said. It's a different kind of center. Now listen, we want to embrace mystery rather than conquer it. We like the question mark. We like question marks. See, we want to embrace questions. But we don't want exclamation marks. Because that would be answers. And yet God has spoken clearly with exclamation marks. God, the Holy Spirit is not a skeptic. He doesn't increase our doubts. He brings assurance to our hearts. Now, I could go on. They, they learned this from uh, reading a book, A New Kind of Christian. They were influenced by the author, Brian McLaren. And you can just, you know, I had this book. I saw, this book was popular. I bought it. I read it. And I couldn't even finish it. It was so repulsive. It was so uh, false teaching that I could not even critique it and work through it. A new kind of Christian. Yes, one that's no longer a Christian. And here's what he said. I don't think we've got the gospel right. I don't think the liberals have it right. But I don't think we have it right either. None of us have arrived at orthodoxy. What he is saying is, God hasn't spoken clearly. No one knows. No one knows what is true. No one knows what you must absolutely believe. You've got to see. Listen, class, you've got to see. An attack on the scriptures is an attack on God. An attack on the clarity of scriptures means God stutters. And you can't understand him when he speaks. Now, it's true that God is, is God mighty? And is God mysterious? Yeah, even Paul in Romans 11 says, you know, who, who of us have ever taught God anything? And Paul taught that God's ways are above our, our ways, or Isaiah, and God's thoughts are not our thoughts. And Paul taught that God has things planned for us that eyes have never seen and mind has never thought of. God is mighty, and He's mighty mysterious. Amen? But Paul wrote that, Romans 11 after three chapters of explaining much about God. Listen, mystery is it's right. God is mysterious. We can't know everything about God, but that doesn't mean that we can't know something about God. Are you with me? And what we know is what He's clearly said, and what He says can be understood. Amen? I want to hear some response. Amen? Yeah, that's good. That's excited. Makes me think you're awake. Number three, challenge number three is this. The third challenge to, to the clarity of Scripture is the challenge of religious authoritarianism. Religious authoritarianism. And this is where we really get into the battle that was taking place between the Reformers in the Roman Catholic Church, and it's still relevant today. Religious authoritarianism. And here's what they say. Because God's Word, written, is not clear, 
We need religious authorities to study the Scripture for us and tell us what it means. Or, to put it real simply, we know better because Scripture is not very clear to you. It's very condescending. It's very uh, parental. The Roman Catholic Church and cults, or because we're not picking on any, any religious authority that says, pat you on the head and said, now I know you mean well, and you're a good person, and you just keep sitting there, and but don't bother reading the Bible. It's very hard. You won't understand it. You're not really in tune. Maybe you're not connected to the Spirit like I am, or maybe they say you don't have the training that I have. You don't worry about the Bible. Trust me. And when people say that, you need to be, when you say trust God, you're okay. But when it, trust me, I will tell you. I will tell you because you're not able to. Okay? So don't bother bringing your Bible. See, folks like this aren't going to say, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do every class period, they're not going to say that. They're going to say, I hope you don't have your Bible because you really don't need your Bible because why? I will explain to you. And literally, the Roman Catholic Church prohibited its people from reading the Scriptures until the Second Vatican. But even the Second Vatican, in recent modern history, said this, you can read the Bible, but just understand only we can properly interpret it for you. All right, so what's this mean? Let me give you some Luther. So here's Luther speaking 500 years ago. Here's what he says. Luther believed that wherever the Pope reigned, nothing is more commonly stated or more generally accepted than the idea that the Scriptures are obscure and ambiguous, so that the Spirit to interpret them must be sought from the apostolic see the papal authorities in Rome. Luther continued, and he said this, Nothing more pernicious could be said than this, for it has led ungodly men to set themselves above Scripture and to fabricate whatever they pleased until the Scriptures have been completely trampled down and we have been believing and teaching nothing but the dreams of madmen. Man, Luther, he nailed it. So when, I, when the religious authority, not me, when the religious authority says, look, I am the only person that can understand this. When the cult leader says that, and I will tell you what it means, they're exalting themselves over Scripture. And eventually the Scriptures get set aside. This is the beautiful thing. If you're trying to reach a Roman Catholic friend, engage them in reading the Bible because I guarantee you, most of them, not all, but most, have never read the Bible. And no one's ever said, you want to read the Bible with me? Let's just read it. You know, I've got questions about the Bible, but I found that God answers a lot of my questions in the Bible. Let's read the Bible together. It's okay. Engage them in reading the Scriptures. Here's what it comes down to. Well, let me just read this one quote from current Roman, uh, Roman Catholic teaching. Vatican II says, The task of authentically interpreting the Word of God whatever written or handed down. So remember, the Roman Catholic Church says the Bible's an authority, but so is traditions handed down. And now they're saying, whether it's the Bible or these traditions that we've come up through with through the years, 
whatever it is, we'll tell you what it means. We'll tell you what it means. All right, so here's what religious authoritarian, it comes down to this. Number one, here's what they say. The scriptures are unclear. The scriptures are unclear in what they say, so trust us to tell you what it says and means. Okay, they're unclear. The second thing they say, and this is as deadly and despicable as the first, and it's this, the saints are unable to understand the scriptures. So we must tell you what it says and means. The scriptures are not only unclear, but you, as believer priests, as born again sons and daughters of the living God, with His Spirit dwelling in you, you are unable. But somehow me, I'm different. I've got that connection. I've got that position. I've got that authority. I, on the other hand, can tell you what it means. Do you see how deadly that is? Do you see how deadly that is? So it's not just Roman Catholic priests and popes. It's any cult leader. And it could be any pastor. You could be in a Baptist church with a supposedly Bible-believing church, and you could have a pastor in the pulpit wielding this kind of authoritarian, religious authoritarianism that's telling you what to do and believe. Fourth challenge is this. Fourth challenge. The challenge of modern rationalism. The challenge of modern rationalism. Okay? And here's the idea here. The idea here is, because God's Word, written, is not clear and actually also not trustworthy, as we studied last week, because of that, we need to use our reasoning to discern and determine what is truth and what is error. And here's as simple as I can make it. Human reasoning knows better than the clarity of Scripture. So if you would come to a modern a person with modern rationalistic thinking, you would say, isn't it pretty clear here that God so loved the world? Or no, let me go here. Isn't it pretty clear in John 14, 6 that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life? Isn't that clear? And no one comes to the Father except by me? That's, is that clear, everybody? That's clear. That means there's only one way. Jesus is exclusively the one way to knowing God. And yet a modern person will say, now how do we know Jesus said that? Are you sure that verse really belonged in the Bible? You know, it's been copied all these years. Do we really know what Jesus said? And so a bunch of scholars who were too smart for their own good in the 80s joined what was called the Jesus Seminar. And they set out, quote, for a quest for the historical Jesus. So, 14 legit scholars and a bunch of pseudo-scholars and even a movie producer got together on a regular basis for a couple decades, opened the Bible, and had four different colored beads in a jar. And this bead said, Jesus said what he says in the Bible. The second bead was, maybe Jesus didn't say it, but, but more than likely, he said it. The third bead said, well, he, he didn't say it, but at least it contains the idea that is in keeping what we think Jesus would say. 
And then the fourth bead was, Jesus didn't say it. Well, by the time they were playing with their little... I mean, think about the hubris. Think of the pride of a bunch of men and women sitting in a room, and we're going to vote on what Jesus said and what he didn't say in the Bible. And by the time they were done, they had ended up... Their goal was to separate historical fact from mythology. And by the time they were done, they had rejected the myth of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, the myth of the virgin birth, the myth of every single miracle in the gospel, and a full 82% of what Jesus says in the Bible he didn't really say. For example, the Lord's Prayer, after adding up their beads, their little colored beads, they decided that all we have in the Lord's, uh, the, the Lord's Prayer that, the Lord, that we know Jesus actually said was our Father. Now, I mean, I mean, let that weigh on you. That's the hopelessness of religious liberalism. That's the, that's the hopelessness of when you or I set ourselves up over the Bible and say, well, God may have said that, but I don't like it. God may have said that, but that offends me. God may have said that, but that drives a wedge between me and my spouse or a wedge between me and my kid or my parent. So it's easy, in a sense, to mock the Jesus Seminar scholars. But beloved, look, look, look at me. Look at me. If we're not careful when we read the Word of God, we have our colored beats. And while we would say God spoke it, we might say, I choose not to believe it. Or, I know that sounds ungodly. I believe it. I can't do it. I don't like that part of Scripture. I tremble when God's people, and I've met them, I have met them, who will say, yeah, I know that's in the Bible. And, and please understand, there's stuff in the Bible that in a sense I don't like, but I made a decision as a young man that I'm living in submission. I don't do it perfectly, but I'm, my point is when I embrace that tension and that difficulty, I made a decision long ago by the grace of God. I'm submitting. I'm submitting. And if I don't like it, God help me to end up liking it. I used to say, like many preachers would say, when they taught on hell, I don't like that. I wish it wasn't in there. I've quit saying that because that impugns the glory of God. It impugns the wisdom of God. It says, somehow, I know better and I wish it wasn't there, but I guess God, you know, He does those kind of things. No, I want to, I want to embrace the majesty and the mystery of my God. Amen? Because listen, if you start questioning, and it's, it's, not, it's not wrong to question in order to arrive at answers and submission. But I mean, when you start questioning to open the door to greater doubt, you'll eventually doubt it all. And you will do it unexpectedly. When you have the miscarriage, 
When your loved one goes off into a promiscuous lifestyle, when your prodigal doesn't come home because you have created such a gap between the clarity and the certainty of God's Word and your own human reasoning, and you've done it over time and you've grown comfortable with it, that when the crisis comes, and right now all Scott and Laura have is God, nothing else matters. And sure, they love Maisie, but right now, it's God. And it's what you believe about God. And it's whether I can trust what God has said. Amen? You have got to settle these issues. And so, we can sit in judgment on the clarity of Scripture. The last challenge is this. The challenge of postmodern Postmodern relativism, and boy, we're swimming in it. We're swimming in it. Postmodern relativism. Say, Chris, what is this? I'm glad this is the fifth one. You're maxing me out. Well, I am too, because we're out of time. So here it is. Here it is. Because there is no such thing as absolute truth, that is true in all places, at all times, for all people, we can never really know anything for sure, and because of that, everyone's opinion is equally valid. Everyone, now, this is, the, this, is, this is the culture of social media. Well, actually, it isn't, because everybody says, if, you're not, if you don't agree what I agree, then I hate you. Okay? But... The point is, if you counter them and say, yeah, but what you believe is not true, I hate you more. This is the culture that we're in. So here it is. Alan Bloom, in a well-known book from 1987, said this. In 1987, in his book, The Closing of the American Mind, here's what he said. There's one thing a professor can be absolutely certain of. Almost every student entering the university believes or says he believes that truth is relative. And I would say to you that is true even in our churches. That pastors can stand in the pulpit, teach the Bible, and be relatively sure that nearly everyone entering our doors believes that truth is relative. Parents, this is the greatest challenge we have in raising and discipling the next generation is teaching them to swim upstream against relativity and to stand up and take a beating for saying there is absolute truth. Are you with me? In fact, the situation, this was 1987 when he said that. I think the American mind has closed (laughs) and it has been thrown out. And now we're at a place where you can no longer walk into Bible-believing what you think is a conservative church. You can no longer walk into those churches and believe the man behind the pulpit believes that there is absolute truth. I've told you numerous times of this pastor in our area from Independence who no longer believes in the biblical teaching on hell as eternal conscious torment and recently taught three weeks on a series, Rethinking Hell, 
And he said, and I've said it before, but it's relevant to each one of these. He said, the most radical thing I'm going to say in this three-week series is this. And he was right. The Bible says nothing. It must be interpreted. What he just said to his congregation, which frequently clap and applaud his heretical statements, is the Bible's not clear. We all have to figure out what it says, and everybody has a different interpretation. And in this series, he proceeded to present three different views of hell and basically say they're equally valid, except he really believed the one that was most unbiblical. And here's what he said. He actually taught a a sermon on false teaching, which I like to call the sermon on the false teaching on false teaching. And his first point in the sermon on false teaching, because, of course, he's being accused, rightly so, of being a false teacher. His first point was, there is such a thing as orthodoxy, point number one. I thought, well, we're, we're, that's good. And then his very next breath, he said, but no one knows what it is. So, okay, don't attack me. I believe in orthodoxy, but no one knows what it is. Are you with me? In this series, at the end of this series, because, hey, since everybody's interpretation is equally valid and we're embracing the question marks of the mystery of God, because who can know what happens after you die? Uh, duh, God has spoken clearly. He had a Q&A time. So I'm going to teach on this in three weeks. We're going to come back at night and you bring your questions and we'll have a Q&A time. And then he said this. But actually, we're not going to have a Q&A time. It's going to be a Q&R time. Questions and responses. And I'm about ready to flip my lid listening to this as people calmly in their pews are saying nothing. Questions and responses. Why? Because there aren't answers. There aren't answers. I interact with pastors a lot on debating issues. We, we, we interact. But I've had Bible-believing, well, guys that have been trained in the same school that I was trained at say, my opinions are just as valid as yours. And I said, well, wait a minute. You're right in the sense that you are entitled to have opinions, just like I am, and we're all free in this country to share them. But when you say your opinions are just as valid, that is not true if we're talking about truth. In other words... Kirk's opinions and my opinions are only valid to the point that they agree with Scripture. So this is very prevalent. Now, let me say this, and this is what we'll close with. The mystery of agnosticism and the relativism of postmodernism likes to focus on the idea that humility is tied to uncertainty. You see, we are humble before God. We are humble and we're loving to others because we embrace what everyone says. And we make no one feel uncomfortable by saying, you're wrong. Or by saying, I won't go there with you because God says otherwise. But please understand this, that you can be very proud about not knowing. Okay? And certainty doesn't automatically make you pride You can be certain of what God says and be humble in sharing it.
So these challenges come down to two questions, and we'll end with this for today. These challenges come down to two questions. Are the scriptures clear enough to be understood? And are believers capable enough? Are you with me? Are they clear enough to be understood? And are you, as an ordinary believer, capable enough to understand them? And so we will pick up with that next week. But, you know, and maybe I'm asking a lot here, but I would challenge you this week, get alone with God. Get alone, if you're married, get alone with your spouse, another fellow believer, and pray through these five challenges, and you ask yourself, where am I tempted? Where am I struggling? Where are family members struggling? Where are the people that are lost struggling? Amen? And then, class, get them in the Word, but you can't get them in something that you're not in. So get it. I'm just telling you personally, God is doing a work in me. I mean, I, I, it, you can't study this stuff and not want to devour his word. You just can't. The spirit of God will stir you up. And that's what I'm praying for. Amen. And what a great prep for the world outreach celebration. Amen. Because open Bibles lead to open hearts that lead to stepping through open doors. Let's go to the Lord. And thank Him for the gift of His Word. Father, we graciously, joyously, humbly thank You that we have a Bible that we can understand. And God, forgive us for letting it sit idle six days of the week and then picking it up. Lord, forgive us for having technology that can take us deeper into Your Word and instead wasting hours on social media, on YouTube, on whatever it is, Snapchat, the whole bit. God, we need to repent. And we need to get back, whether it's through digital or print. That's not the point. The point is to get back and get into our open Bibles where you have spoken clearly, authoritatively, truthfully, and you show us the answer to our greatest needs. It's you, Jesus, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen, amen. Be encouraged, be encouraged.